one of the things that I have found, and I think this definitely relates to what's going on in the prison system, is that in an abusive family, the victims become symptomatic and then they're blamed for their symptoms. So if a kid becomes really aggressive because he's being hit at home, then he tends to be looked at as a bad kid rather than his symptoms are a call for help for healing the family dynamic that's hurting him in the first place. Within three years of release, two out of three ex-offenders are rearrested. Clearly, something is broken. It's time we strategize ways to prevent repeat offenses. Our brainstorming session starts now. Welcome to A Prisoner's Pardon. Hello and welcome to A Prisoner's Pardon Podcast. I'm your host, Michi J. Today, we're having as our guest, Phyllis Levitt. And she's going to be talking about why prison reform resources should include mental health therapy. Now, Phyllis Levitt is a psychotherapist with a master's degree in psychology and counseling. Phyllis is also an author and has written a book, A Light in the Darkness. She has also written the book, Into the Fire. Now that she's mostly retired, she's preparing for publication, her latest book, and it's called America to Therapy. Let's jump right into my interview with Phyllis about her latest book and how it relates to prison reform. Hi, Phyllis. How are you today? I'm good. Thank you so much for having me here. Okay. Is there anything else you can tell us about you? I know I just did this introduction, but is there anything else I can tell the audience? Yeah, I've been a psychotherapist for over 30 years, and I originally, right out of graduate school, I worked in a sexual abuse treatment program for many years, and then I just worked in private practice. I worked with individuals, adults, families, children, and I've done a lot of work with abuse over the years, partly because there is a lot of abuse in our culture. And maybe more than people tend to realize that, you know, just ordinary people like you and me (laughs) often have very scary backgrounds or abuse in childhood that they never told anyone. And then they become symptomatic later and they seek help if they're lucky. (laughs) That's good. Yeah. I know in our community, that's kind of, I want to say taboo sometimes about taking some sort of therapy, but I hope that people do take therapy because it does help people. And I think people try to do it on Facebook too much, but (laughs) anyway. I think one of the things that therapy is so good for is Mm -hmm. it makes it safe to talk about things that you don't want to talk about in the general public, or even necessarily sometimes with people you're close to, because people often have shame about abuse, or they've blamed themselves, or they feel somehow stigmatized by it. And so therapy can be a really safe container to go into the wounds that many people have suffered and really find healing and be seen for who they actually are and not what was done to them. So I am writing a book right now called America in Therapy. And the whole purpose of my book is to really look at the microcosm of what happens in an individual family, what creates basic mental health and what creates ill health. And the, the worst things that create mental ill health are the dynamics of abuse. And especially Mm -hmm. if there's no rescue for anyone who's being abused 
and there's no treatment at, later on that, that people pretend to be highly symptomatic in some way, whether it's addiction or aggression, or they become really helpless and passive and they're easily manipulated um, or they're really depressed or highly anxious or obsessive. You know, there's all kinds of symptoms. And one of the things that I have found, and I think this definitely relates to what's going on in the prison system is that in an abusive family, the victims become symptomatic and then they're blamed for their symptoms. So if a kid becomes really aggressive because he's being hit at home, then he tends to be looked at as a bad kid rather than his symptoms are a call for help for healing the family dynamic that's hurting him in the first place. So long story mm -hmm. short, the point of my book is to look at the family of America through the same lens, because I believe that a lot of the policies and practices um, and behaviors of people in positions of power and in our government mirror the dynamics of abuse. And hmm. we citizens of America are being abused by a language of discrimination and racism and targeting our victims and, you know, calling people who are poor, lazy, and entitled rather than looking at the economic system that is keeping them impoverished and doing mm -hmm. something about that you know, mm -hmm. um, so, so it's sort of the microcosm and the macrocosm that I've been looking at. And, um, and I know mm -hmm. you have a slant that has to do with um, prison pardon. And so I'm happy to go <laughs> in that direction. Just ask me a question. Okay, thank you for that. So I definitely agree that there, there are a lot of background issues, you know, more so with people that's in prison, and they, like you said, they act out and they don't really know because they don't really know how to process it. They may act out in anger because right. I've seen a lot of them that have a lot of anger issues. Of and course. honestly, it's that's most of it. And mm -hmm. but you also what I found interesting, you said that sometimes is they go the opposite way, that they're very mm -hmm. passive. Right. That Wow. That's really what I've seen as a therapist over many, many years, that, that when abuse is not stopped and a person is not able to get treatment of any kind or help, you know, somebody come to their rescue or offer them a different path in life or see them as a valuable human being, the two main outcomes I see are what are called identification with the aggressor, which means becoming like a victimizer or mm -hmm. becoming helpless because many people... And especially when people are abused as children in some way or severely neglected, they have no appropriate power. They can't stop the person who's bigger and stronger, who's hurting them. And often they either don't know that they could go get help or there's no help available or they're not believed. And so they, it's called learned helplessness. They learn that not resisting is the safest way to go. That becomes survival just hmm. wait till it's over. And I've had many, many clients who have described to me being abused, even as adults who just freeze and they, they just hmm. can't protect themselves. And, but hmm. both outcomes are horrible. Both outcomes set us up for a really unhappy life and an unhappy society. That's interesting to know because I've, I know more about the, I've seen more of the anger one, not right. the, 
the ones that freeze. And I could see sometimes more so probably women on that That's spectrum. That's right. Because it's a lot of women in prison because they've been abused by men and they're following the men. And that's where they were getting their, I guess, desires met and they ended up in prison. So I never heard that being talked about much. So also in your book, you talk about the the dynamics about prison there. It's a money making machine too. Mm -hmm. And how all the, the funds that we have are just are not going to therapy at all, where right. we need to have some of those monies going. I don't think that it's, it's a subheading under prison reform for therapy. No, it seems to me that at least from the research that I did for my book, that the, the programs that are designed to be rehabilitating for people in the, who are incarcerated are volunteer programs. They're coming from people who just really care and want to give their time and their love and their energy and their caring to people who are incarcerated, but they're not even paid. They're doing it out of the goodness of their heart. And, um, and, and I, and that was another thing I researched for my book that was really heartening to me actually was that there's been research done in America about how many people volunteer in different capacities, whether they give money or time or help feed the homeless or help people grow gardens or, you know, um, do wonderful projects for inner city youth or whatever they do, that there's a high percentage of people who volunteer in this country, but that's not what we talk about. We Hmm. talk about all the violence on our media, which just feeds it. That is, that's true. And they, they do that because of, they want more clicks and um, with them focusing on it, they don't understand that they're feeding it and people are acting out on it. And yeah, that's terrible. And we don't really think about that a lot when we see all this news about this and how it's just focusing on that actually escalates it as well. Absolutely. Uh, Absolutely. And it's, and it, and especially if that violent language and rhetoric and a really inhumane way of looking people is what people in positions of authority are espousing, that's like um, the conditioning that our children are getting from the media. And they're learning that instead of people who are people who hurt other people are hurting people. And that's what we know from the world of psychotherapy. Someone who grow, grows up in a safe home where their basic needs are met, where they're not stigmatized for their race or their religion or their gender, um, who are loved, who somebody cares about, you know, where they are and what happens to them and how they grow up. These people are not going out and joining gangs and murdering people. They're not. Um, And that's, that's what we have to provide. We have to put our funding into families and helping families and helping children um, so that we, we catch some of the abuse and some of the neglect before it erupts into like the Uvalde shooter, for instance. Hmm. Yeah, this, that's a sad thing. I totally agree that we will filter out the ones that we can reach right now and because they are crying out for help and they're ready for help, but they don't get it. That's right. I don't, they don't get it. Cause I've seen that a lot 
in our communities. So I've been in that position myself. I've seen, um, you know, my, some of the family members and stuff like that. If they don't get the help, of course, that's the next step in it has to be, it's like a time bomb, I, I, I think, because right. it has to be a release. It's going to, something's going to happen, <laughs> you know. Right. Well, so, they call it a cycle of abuse. If it doesn't get interrupted, it repeats itself. That's what right. happens. And so you have, um, and that's why I'm, I feel particularly concerned about what's happening um, on the macro scale of the government and some of the institutions in our country that are role modeling abusive behaviors and abusive attitudes toward people, because the result is we just produce more and more people who identify with the aggressor and become the aggressor and more and more people who are helpless, who can be dominated by them. Mm -hmm. And that's not a healthy cycle for our society. Mm -hmm. I even think that not just the inmates themselves should be in this therapy, but the guards as well. I think it should be something almost similar to policemen when, if they're involved in any kind of incident, they're immediately sent to a therapy, you know, some sort of therapy, their questions, stuff like that. And because I had an ex correctional officer he worked in a hole where the prisoner, it's like a prison within a prison where mm-hmm. the inmates go if they made some sort of, some incident, broke a rule or something. And he was saying how he talked to the person rather than talking at the person. Right. And it was a definitely a totally different response he got. And a hundred percent. Hmm. Cause yeah. that, that made a bigger difference. And, but a lot, they're not training them to do that though. Right. No, this is, this is actually a societal mindset change. And so what, what I'm writing about is we know some of these principles from really good psychotherapy. And I'll, I'll describe one to you. That's very important for what we're talking about. And that is, you know, often I used to see children a lot and, um, what I began to realize in doing play therapy and other therapies with children is their symptoms, you know, maybe they were brought to therapy because they're wetting the bed or they were really aggressive toward their siblings or they're, you know, isolated at school and not doing well, but they're, they're having a symptom that's bad enough that it causes their parents to pay attention. Right. Mm -hmm. So somebody brings them to therapy in the best of all worlds, which doesn't always happen by a long Mm -hmm. shot, but And what I would find is that the child was actually bearing the symptoms of family distress. So they're the ones that were like mom and dad are really fighting, or one of the parents is an alcoholic and coming home drunk and angry, or there's some kind of like depressive disorder in the family. The mom's in in her room with the door shut and the kids can't get to her. You know, there's something going on in the family and the child becomes symptomatic as a way to alarm somebody that the family needs help. And if we just look at that child, like what's wrong with him? He's 11 years old and he's wetting the bed. We're never going to help him. Mm-hmm. We have to look at the family system. And my my whole argument in my book is that we have to look at the family system of America, that the most symptomatic people, the people who are sex trafficking, who are robbing, embezzling, who are um, 
raping, who are beating their children, these people are also calling for help for the family of America. And yeah, they have to be treated. And some of them, we do need to incarcerate if we don't know how to help them heal and become safe. But we have to look at the big picture. Otherwise, we just keep repeating what we're doing. And we create more and more symptomatic people that then we feel justified in jailing. Mm-hmm. And it's not a healthy society. And that's not even humane. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I agree that we do need to look at the family, the breakdown of the family of America, because, you know, in my book, I looked at the breakdown in my community, the families in my community, but it's, again, just a microcosm of that's right America's family. It's the breakdown in all the families right now, it seems. I don't, I haven't seen anybody that comes out of it unscathed. So with you making this pitch, and especially we see it in prisons, and that's what I'm dealing with here. Right. right. We need to look at it with the inmate, uh, as well as the correctional officers, anybody that comes into contact with them, even I think even the siblings, myself, because I found out as I was researching and stuff, I had to look into my own self and found that why I was angry at my brother, angry with my family. And it was, I had to deal with those first before I can be of any help. Mm. And I think that's the same thing with any prison guard or uh, any official one who's putting these policies together, they need to do some self-reflecting first before, you know, absolutely. And it should be a requirement, not like, like a mean thing, but a requirement, like you have people's lives in your hands. And to the extent that you're not healed as a human being, and none of us are totally perfectly healed, of course, but to the extent that you're really not healed, you're going to project all your un resolved issues onto other people. And that's so much of what happens in prison and in society. You know, um, do you, do you, are you following what I'm saying? Do you know uh, what I'm- now, yeah, no, Dr. Phyllis, I was thinking, hmm, I ha- I've lost my chain of thought. And it was about the um, family unit again, because you made a point that it should be a re- Okay, you made the point it should be a requirement for them, any any person that's making any kind of decisions to go through this so that they're in a a better position to be able to make these decisions. Because that's what I found out even personally about me, because it has nothing to do, definitely nothing to do with politics, but I've seen it to if they don't have this therapy too, because it, it can be enabling too. Cause I've seen right, right. Um, this other part where they're enabling because they haven't had that because they don't know how to deal with the person or what's going on because I've had calls and questions from people sometimes about what do I do about my cousin or my brother or whatever. And I've seen it sometimes where they're not helping because they're enabling because they don't know how to cope with it or so they're that good point. That's a very Mm -hmm. good point because I think we tend to either enable or come down harshly on people. 
Yeah, because we have to have a balance. Because at first I was, I think I went through a spectrum. (laughs) I don't know. First it was enabling. And then I went to harsh. Listen, you know. And it's like, once I got how we call it, getting the stone out my hand and uh, the log out my eye, I was able to come in a better way to help because now I have the compassion and love at the same time Mm -hmm. and without losing the disciplinary aspect of it because that's a form of love as well because you want to protect um because I mentioned it's like this is prison's part and we're not saying that there's no consequences right it's Mm -hmm. a balance between you're you're absolutely right it's a balance between we're still holding ourselves and other people responsible for our actions, but we can still, we can at the same time have compassion for what created the worst of our behaviors. And that's actually that combination I think is what heals. Otherwise you're right. It just becomes either enabling or a harsh judgment. And, Mm -hmm. and what I have found in here, I'll go back to the microcosm and then talk about it in terms of the macrocosm. What I have found with people, you know, you know, all of us to some degree probably have hurt other people. We've hurt their feelings or we've rejected them or we've judged them. Um, even if we haven't committed a crime, right? We Mm -hmm. all have things that we, that are not so great that we've done out of our unhealed wounds, our projections onto other people, whatever, wherever it came from. Mm -hmm. And what I find with people is in working with them in therapy, if we go into their wounds and what happened to them as a child, Mm -hmm. almost invariably, they see themselves the ways they've hurt other people. You don't have to tell them what you did was wrong with so-and-so. They see it themselves because of exactly what you said. Once they start to have compassion for themselves, they can have compassion for other people. Hmm. And it's, and that I see in our country, like, you know, you know, so somebody you might go back and work with, okay, um, I'll give a, you know, an, I, I don't work with a criminal population. So I'll just give you examples that are milder. But I had a client years ago who destroyed the, some of the property of her ex when he left her for another woman. And sounds and she, like something I almost did, but go ahead. <laughs> <laughs> right. And people feel that way. You know, they feel like they want to go slash tires or break windows or smash something because they're hurting because they're hurting and they feel powerless to get what they need, which is the love that they lost or whatever it is. And, you know, she had a lot of shame about what she did. And she also was really happy about what she did. She was glad she (laughs) (laughs) right? So we're human, but when we went into her own childhood issues and how she had been hurt, um, then she had a different perspective on her own behavior and it stopped. Of course, you know, it stopped and, and, and her, her ex did not prosecute her. So she wasn't, she wasn't in the legal system, but she could have been, mm-hmm. she could have been. Um, but it, it was really working on her own wounds that brought her back from the destructive behavior. Like she still had those impulses. She was still angry, but she had the control not to act on it. And mm-hmm. that's, that's possible for people. 
Mm-hmm. We have to give that to people who are incarcerated, you know, that it's possible that many people could heal even before they go to jail, you know, that maybe what they need is treatment. Yeah. And it's like, you know, we got to get past that taboo and they, I think a lot of them speaking from experience, they don't think they need help at times. And they, cause they think, cause they're coming from an environment that is kind of like normal, you know, it, it doesn't even seem like, Oh, it's, that's odd. No, it's like, stuff they see all the time. So it, it wouldn't stick out to them like, well, I need help. Well, everybody needs help. Uh, but it's what you're saying is that from my own experience, because I experienced this, I had to see myself as I really was. That's I did not see myself. That was a shocker when I saw my real self. <laughs> So, but, so let me just say, yeah, because sometimes it's uncomfortable. Like, you know, we want to see the good things, but not, not everybody has all good things. We all have some way that well, we, we believe. Well, some people are delusional. I, mean, right. I was under that. <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. But I think what you're speaking to is something that's a really broad topic for me. And that is that what I want to see happen. First of all, I, I want to say this. The money that we put into weapons, the money we put into prisons, the money we put into funding programs that are hateful and hurt people um, or take away resources from people and blame them for being lazy or entitled or whatever, the money that, but particularly the money that we put into weaponry and, um, and assault, if we could put that money into restoring human pe- humans into children into helping parents into better wages into funding education we wouldn't have these kinds of problems we it would it really would be a way to turn this around punishment and blame and judgment of people does not heal them and it doesn't heal their children mm-hmm. so the cycle just continues and mm-hmm. so i want to see what you're talking about therapy or whatever way that you did the self-reflection that you did be Mm -hmm. something that we honor and that we foster for people instead of looking down like what you don't need help or go don't go to therapy that's for sissies or um or addressing the fact that a lot of people feel like they don't need help because they never got any and so they don't believe it's possible and they've walled that off Hmm. Yeah. I mean, I didn't, honestly, I didn't at first think about this part, but this is definitely a needed piece of prison reform where they can have some of the therapy available. And you talked about too, did you talk about in your book, the Dama brothers? Yeah. So I, I mentioned it was a documentary that I saw um, it was really powerful. The Dhamma brothers was about, I think I, I, my memory's not that great, but I think it was two men who were Buddhists went into volunteered to go into a prison in, and I believe it was Alabama, but I'd have to re- go back and look. Um, mm-hmm. And I believe the population that they um, volunteered with was a group of men who were in prison for life and they had committed murders and some very bad crimes but mm-hmm. they offered them a Vipassana meditation program. 
Mm-hmm. And, um, and it was voluntary, you know, people just came who wanted to try it out and it was pretty intensive. It was like long mm-hmm. periods of sitting with no talking and no, you know, just sort of like what, whatever the instructions were, were how to meditate. Um, and they just sat there for, you know, many hours and meditated. And I think it was a 10 day program. And part of the documentary was that they interviewed some of these men and they heard, you know, from some of them, some of the very terrible childhoods that they had come from. There were reasons why they had become criminals. Not everybody who has a terrible childhood becomes a criminal. And we know that. So it's not excusing it, but it's also understanding it. And, mm-hmm. and so what you're saying about what you did for yourself is what happened for some of these men. They were able to just really reflect on themselves and their lives and what had happened to them and have some compassion for themselves and the people they hurt. And they became, many of these men became much more peaceful, um, much more able to get along and relational with other people within the prison system. And it was so beautiful. It was such a beautiful um, act of volunteering mm-hmm. that was given and it caught, you know, cost nothing costs nothing to see the essence in these men and speak to it. And, um, and I had, I had mentioned before, there's a man, I believe his name is Brian Stevenson. And Mm -hmm. I quoted him in my book because I really loved what he said. And I think he's worked with prison reform. I believe that, but don't quote me on that. We'd have to look him up. Um, But he said something that was really beautiful. And it was, I don't see anyone for what they've done. There's a person underneath what they've done, you know, and underneath all of us, we are not the worst thing that we ever did. And imagine if everyone who was, who had committed a crime and who was in the prison system was seen that way. There's an Mm -hmm. essential you that was there before any of the awful stuff happened. And I'm going to speak to that. And I'm going to hope that you can recover that part of yourself and recover your life in or out of prison, depending on what your journey is. Mm -hmm. I would hope that would be done where some monies can go towards therapy because while they're inside, because they have a lot of time at that point and they're they're sitting there and it could be used that way because this is a perfect time because they're away from drugs hopefully because right well i've heard about drugs getting into the prison sometimes but we're gonna say for the general for the most part they're away from drugs and they're probably away from family they could be away from certain peers that agitate them and stuff. It's, it's just like they're getting isolated that you can, through therapy, get them healed so that they can be able in a better position to fight the desires to take the drugs. And because that's just a form of I'm trying to forget or get away from it and how they cope. It's a coping system. And if we can get to the healing part and get them healed, they, I think they have a better chance of overcoming obstacles Absolutely. of life because life is just stressful. Right. You know, you're going to be right. triggered everywhere. That's right. So you the know. healing, <laughs> excuse me, enables you mm-hmm. work with your reactions to the stressors that you have in more constructive ways, 
We mm-hmm. are going to have the stressors, like you said. Um, but the big picture, and I just want to emphasize this, is that I, I feel strongly that we need to educate people that mm-hmm. we, we need to make some basic reforms in, in our whole social structure. Hmm. Um, because that's the environment, you know, like the family is the environment for the child. If the family's violent and addicted and calls names and locks people out of the house, then you're going to have highly traumatized children who are very likely to either become abusers themselves or addicts or depressed, um, or obsessed or helpless. You know, there's some of the big symptoms and the same is true for our country if we have abuse dynamics coming from the top down in our country, we're affecting millions of people the same way. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's so, a good point. Because mm-hmm. um, the family. I'm mm-hmm. sorry, go ahead. Go ahead. Uh, yeah, so the family, because some of the things I was looking at with training, um, and that was looking at the family dynamic too, because that's usually left out. They totally. like prison reform. It's like, the family needs to be in the therapy too, because they're going right back to that family. Right. Whatever there is going, they're going to catch it again. And, you know, that's probably where they got it from possibly, you know, so if we don't address them. That's, that's it. It's like the microcosm and the macrocosm are actually merged. We need to help families on the microcosmic level, and we need to look at the dynamics of our country as a family, the family of America, and look and see if the dynamics that we're operating on are healthy. If we have Congress people who are calling each other names and posting videos oh, of somebody. Yeah. Don't, yes, I, I totally agree with that. And I don't condone none of that because it's like, yeah, they're creating a whole environment. It's just everything is is name calling and um don't get me wrong i had to grow up myself not that i really name called but it's just i can see this is not constructive and you know you can't tell somebody not to act this way and you're acting this way so right 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 yeah yeah totally true so what would you say we're we're about done with our interview and i've been sure. very much enjoying us what would you what would be the main thing you would say to and family member or the inmate themselves, what would you say to them about what you're proposing about therapy so that they're not apprehensive about it or find it taboo? Right. Yeah. I mean, I would say um, definitely go the track that you described for yourself. Look at yourself, reflect on yourself, see what the places are where you've been wounded, see the coping mechanisms that have come out of your wounding that maybe are not so constructive either for you or other people and do some work with that because the surest way to change a society is to help individuals because society is individuals, you know, it's made up of individuals and one person can have a profound effect on many people just by healing themselves and being a more loving, compassionate, but boundaried and appropriately responsible human being who's committed to nonviolent conflict resolution. And that's a big one. And, and I would say, I mean, since, you know, there's many things I could say here, but since <laughs> we're coming up, I want to say, and vote for people who have those values. Mm-hmm. Most definitely. Well, I, 
thank you for this interview. It's been a pleasure. And I think more people need to understand that the big perspective. And I came to that conclusion in my own book. It's a family problem. It's the family yes. is broke down of America. And that's, that's why right. we're where we are at now. I have a website. It's www.phyllislevitt.com. Mm -hmm. And I would, you know, invite anyone to come and, you know, look at my website and there's a little sign in place. If you put your email in there, I will let you know when my book is published and, and I'm on YouTube and Facebook and LinkedIn and those kind of things, but I uh, would be happy to communicate with anybody who's interested. Well, thank you. I'm sure I know I'm interested because it's, that's the point that I came to that the family is the whole family the whole of America is broke down. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciated talking with you and sharing with you. Thank you. That was the end of my chat with Phyllis Levitt on why prison reform resources should include mental health therapy. And here are my takeaways. Number one, the American family is broken down and we're seeing the effects of it all in our society. We see it, especially in those that are incarcerated. We see depression, we see anger, we see enabling, we see a whole spectrum of issues. The second takeaway is mental therapy should be a resource that's available for people that's incarcerated right now. It shouldn't be for people when they get out. We need to have the resources for them now before they get out so they can better be able to just fight any kind of addictive behavior, anything that will cause them to come back to jails. They need to be healed while they're there. I must add that this should be done with security measures in place. Safety is always important when we're dealing with inmates. Number three is everybody that's involved with prison reform, and that means family too, need to do some self-reflection, get into therapy themselves, because that can be a problem in dealing with people from enabling to just uh, excessive harshness with someone is you have to have that balance where you have compassion and love at the same time when you're dealing with someone with the issues if you having the same type of problems or having issues just going on in your own life it's going to be hard for you to really be balanced when you're dealing with someone else and handing down any kind of policies or even just trying to help them Again, I must add that we have to keep in mind safety and security of our communities and just the general public when we're dealing with prison reform. We should not be lowering the consequences of people's actions. They have to take responsibility for it. We understand that they do come from backgrounds that may have them make the wrong decisions, but they still made choices and we still have to hold them accountable for it. But we should also have compassion and to be able to help those who want to be helped in having some sort of opportunities for them to get the help.
Well, that was my takeaways. I hope you enjoyed this interview as much as I did. Until next time, God bless. Thanks for tuning in to the show. For more information on our guests and resources, visit prisonerspardon.com. If you're enjoying the content, follow, like, and subscribe to this podcast. Also, please be sure to leave a rating and review. Until next time, God bless.